We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the first chapter, the book of Hebrews and the first chapter, as we officially begin our exposition through this epistle. I'll be reading in your hearing and preaching this morning on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here the writer to the Hebrews writes, Long ago at many times... And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your kind providence in bringing us here to worship you today, and we would ask for the work of your spirit now that we turn our attention to your word that it would go forth with power that the Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher would reveal to us the truth of this passage reveal to us its meaning in such a way that our esteem and adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ would greatly increase bless us and do that work dear God that only you can do for well, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, as we considered two weeks ago in our introduction to the book of Hebrews, God has not concealed his will, nor has God concealed his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from his own people. But rather, all throughout redemptive history, God has clearly spoken on both of these themes. In fact, in our sermon text this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the writer to the Hebrews reminds his readers and us that God has not been silent. But beginning long ago, God began to progressively unfold at various times and in various ways his own redemptive purposes for mankind. And it was always God's intention, it was always God's design that his redemptive purposes, that his gospel intentions be communicated to us by means of holy men. Men who were chosen and set apart by God himself. Men who were filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Men who were sent out by God to prophesy, to actually speak out on behalf of God before his people. Men who were appointed and empowered by God to be his holy prophets. Where the writer to the Hebrews states here in verse 1 that God's primary means of speaking to our fathers long ago in the days of the Old Testament was by the prophets. They were the ones who under God's divine direction, who under the Holy Spirit's divine inspiration, began to slowly unfold, to 
progressively reveal God's redemptive purposes as it was embodied through the Lord Jesus Christ. For while the prophets of old spoke to the fathers at different times and in a variety of ways throughout the course of the Old Testament, their central focus, we see, was on God's redemptive and saving purposes in Jesus Christ, which would eventually be fulfilled in Christ's coming, in Christ's true sufferings and death upon the cross, and in Christ's victorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. For these were the great themes of the Old Testament prophets as they prophesied boldly, although many of the Old Testament prophets did not fully understand in their time what they were proclaiming or even how it related to the gospel in its fullness. And yet God used the faithful testimony of all the prophets to point his elect people to the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself made this clear in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, where he declared to his disciples after his own resurrection these words, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. For all of the Old Testament prophets, in some way and to some degree, testified of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did so faithfully as God's appointed spokesman. And yet, as great as the Old Testament prophets and their testimonies were, none of them, nor all of them collectively, were as great a witness to the truth of God and to the revelation of God's redemptive purposes as the Lord Jesus Christ was and still is. For like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus was chosen by God. He was filled with the Spirit. In fact, we're told he was filled with the Spirit without measure. And Jesus spoke faithfully for God before all of his people. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, and in a way far greater than any of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus was appointed by God to reveal far more than they could or did. For Jesus Christ not only came down from heaven with a message from God the Father, Jesus himself was the message. He was not merely the messenger, but he was the message itself. Or to put it in another way, in the words of John's Gospel, Jesus Christ not only brought a word from God, but Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is that divine word which not only was with God in the beginning, but was God, who became flesh, according to John 1.1 and John 1.14, revealing God ultimately and with great finality to man. And so it is in this context of Christ himself being the ultimate and final word of God that we now come to verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. And here we read this, that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
These are very significant words, to say the least. And they are significant because these words here in verse 2 give us some valuable insight into two things in particular. Number one, these words tell us how we should see our times. How we should see our times. And then secondly, they tell us how we should see Christ and why we should be listening to him. How we should see Christ and why we should be listening to him. First, with respect to how we should see our own times, let us notice where the writer of this book places us as New Testament Christians in the unfolding of redemptive history. For given that Jesus has already come, given that he has fully declared the will of God and the saving purposes of God, notice that the writer to the Hebrews places all of us who now live and believe on this side of the cross in the last days. Notice that. In these last days. For we read here in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And why do I call our attention to the significance of these words in these last days. Well, I call our attention to the significance of these words because there is a lot of discussion in our day about the last days. The last days. In fact, one popular commentator wrote a book called Last Days Madness. It seems to characterize our days. Many people are concerned about the last days, discussing the last days. And I, I think that many people, frankly, are deeply confused. And not only are they confused, but they are now looking and listening for some kind of final revelation to tell them what to do. And yet this text plainly tells us that the last days actually began long ago. They began a long ago when Jesus came and spoke the final words that God the Father had given to him. And since we are in the last days still, we are to live in the light of what Jesus taught and what scripture records of Christ. Furthermore, because we are living in these last days, we should not anticipate any further revelation outside of what God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. For what we already possess through Jesus Christ is more than sufficient. It is more than sufficient. In fact, notice that our text here, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, does not say that in these last days God will speak to us in some new ways. The writer to the Hebrews does not say that God will return to the old ways that he once used to communicate to his people through angelic beings or visions or dreams as though something more is needed to be added to what Christ has already done and taught. But rather our text states that in these last days, these days when we live in the light of what Christ has already done and fulfilled, we should recognize that God has already spoken to us ultimately and finally in his Son. Ultimately and finally in his Son. And because God has spoken already through Christ, we have no need for a new revelation. We have no need for those things 
that God once used in former times to speak to his people in types and symbols and shadows of things to come because we already have in Jesus and through his life and teaching everything we possibly need. God's revelation is finished. God's revelation is complete in Jesus Christ. And of course, this brings us thirdly to questions of how we should see Jesus Christ and why we should be listening to Christ. And let us notice that the writer to the Hebrews gives us clear answers to these questions by declaring to us here at the end of verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1 that he, Jesus Christ, was appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And how do these things qualify Jesus as God's ultimate and final revelation? Well, first, by being appointed heir of all things, Jesus has been given authority over all things. And his authority extends to how God and salvation are revealed to us. In fact, all things in heaven and earth have been given to Jesus Christ as his inheritance because of his obedience to the Father. For in Psalm 2 and verse 8, the Father said to the Son, the Lord Jesus, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And of course, we know that this has happened in the course of redemptive history. In fact, redemptive history is really the unfolding of God's promise to Christ and the fulfillment of God's promise to Christ to give him the nations as his inheritance. As the Father has answered this request made by Christ, according to this text, Christ has asked for it. And the Father, in faithfulness to the Son, whom he loves, has answered it, has granted it. And therefore, as God's ultimate and final word, Jesus exercises his authority, and he exercises his authority whenever his word is faithfully preached. I want you to think about preaching in that way. He exercises his authority wherever his word is faithfully preached. In fact, we could say that the word of Christ preached is his declaration of his authority over us. His declaration of his authority over us. It is through his preached word that Christ claims his inheritance. Think about that carefully. It is through his preached word that Christ claims his inheritance. As his word is preached, he is calling forth those who have been given to him by the Father. He is claiming them as his own. He is overcoming their wills and their resistance to make them his own children. It is primarily through and by his preached word that Christ gathers up all of those who are his promised inheritance. And when you think about preaching, brethren, in that way, it's very exciting. It's thrilling to know that God is at work and the means that God is using to gather his elect, to gather his elect. Then secondly, according to verse 2 here, Christ is rightly set apart as God's ultimate and final revelation because through him, through Christ, God created the world. 
through him God created the world. And what does this speak of? Well, this speaks not only of, of Christ's authority, but it speaks even more so about Christ's power. Christ's power, and especially about the power that is inherent and invested in Christ's word to create something out of nothing, just as the world itself was created. In fact, later in this same book, the writer to the Hebrews makes a very fascinating statement about the creation of the universe and how God brought it into existence. For we read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, this declaration by faith, we understand that the universe was created how? By evolution? No. By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And therefore, by stating here that Christ is the ultimate and final word because he created the world, the writer to the Hebrews is urging us to see that it is through the word that Christ reveals his mighty power. Not just his authority, but his power. And Christ's power is evident in the fact that he has revealed what no one else can and did reveal regarding God and his saving purposes. So what does the writer to the Hebrews emphasize to us here in these first two amazing verses of Hebrews chapter 1? He emphasizes that Christ was not only the focus of the Old Testament prophets, but Christ was the embodiment of the truth that they preached. For he revealed God and the will of God perfectly. He fulfilled everything in the word of God to its entirety, and he did so with such unequal. And now, brethren, as we continue our consideration of these opening verses of Hebrews 1, we also want to consider the fact that Jesus is our faithful mediator. That Jesus is our faithful mediator. And what is a mediator, you might ask? A mediator is one who stands between two parties and who functions to bring them together in reconciliation and in unity. And Jesus is presented as our faithful mediator here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He's presented as our mediator in other places as well, but here primarily in verses 3 and 4, by virtue of what he reveals, by what he removes, and by what he reigns over. What he reveals, what he removes, and what he remains, or excuse me, what he reigns over. Let's consider each of these dimensions of his faithfulness as our mediator briefly as they unfold here in our text, beginning with what Jesus reveals to us. And what does Jesus reveal to us about God especially? Well, as our faithful mediator, Jesus reveals to us the glory and the nature of God himself. Jesus reveals to us the glory and the nature of God himself. For we read here in the first part of verse 3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what exactly does the writer mean here when he states that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? 
Well, no doubt he means here by this statement that Jesus reveals to us something about God's glory that we would not have known otherwise. Jesus reveals to us something about God's glory that we simply could not have known unless Jesus, in obedience to the Father, came down to this earth and he revealed it to us. For in God himself, God is most glorious, and so much so that no man can gaze upon the unmediated glory of God and still live. And yet in coming to this earth and becoming our faithful mediator, Jesus reveals God's great glory to us, which is amazing if you think about it. And Christ does so not merely in what he proclaims to us as our great prophet who serves to teach us and to remove our ignorance, but Jesus does so more importantly and profoundly in his own person. In his own person. For Jesus is the radiance, notice that, the radiance of God's glory. He is the very light. He is the very beam. He is the very brightness of God's own glory mediated to us through his own person and through his own office as our mediator. For in Jesus we see, in Jesus as portrayed in scripture, we behold the Father's glory. And in a way more keenly and in a manner far more directly than God had ever revealed his own glory to mankind before. And of course, this is why Jesus could say to Philip, when Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, these words, whoever has seen me, you remember these words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. For in his role as our faithful mediator, Jesus reveals to us in a way that we can gradually understand through the work of the Spirit and in a way by which we are not utterly consumed or destroyed in the process, the awesome glory of our great God. For what was not possible in times past, what man could not possibly see or witness before Jesus Christ came, became seen, it became known through the ministry of our faithful mediator, the Lord Jesus. For Jesus revealed to us, through the revealing of himself, the radiance of God's glory. And so when we see Jesus, when you and I focus on Jesus in the pages of Holy Scripture, and by the way, that's where we see him. We don't see him in the mirror. We don't see him in nature. We see him in this word. When we see Jesus, when we behold him, we see all that God would have us to know about his glory. For God's glory is revealed through Jesus, our faithful mediator, and him alone. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes a wonderful statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. He states that we now find the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. Then secondly, we see here in verse 3 that Jesus also reveals to us the nature of God. 
the nature of God? Do we want to know what God is like truly? Then Jesus reveals that to us. For Jesus is the exact imprint. Notice that terminology. The exact imprint of God's nature. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ reveals to us, again, through his own person, not just through his message and his actions, the very character, eternal character of God. For just as a coin bears the exact image or imprint of the die that it is cast from, so Jesus in his humanity, in his humanity, bears the exact imprint and image of God. For when we see Jesus as he is presented in Holy Scripture, we see the very one who embodies all that God is and all that God is like. And if you think about that for a moment, your head will begin to pound. And if God left us in that state indefinitely, our heads would explode. Just think about it. In him, he embodies all that God is and all that God is like in human flesh, in his humanity. For what Jesus did is revealed to us in a way not seen before who God is by nature. For Jesus carried out the will of God perfectly. He expressed the character of God exactly. He left us with no doubts as to what fallen man must do if he desires to be accepted by this glorious God, and that is to be fully reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. For when we see Jesus, we do not see a mediator who is a fair representation of the true God. You know what I mean by that, right? You say, well, it's not exact, but it is a, a fair representation. No, he, he's not a fair representation of God. He, he's not a mediator who is similar to God. But we see one who is the exact imprint, the exact image of God's own nature and because Jesus is just that, the exact imprint of God, he is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. And then not only does Jesus reveal the glory of God and the nature of God, but we also see that Jesus reveals the power of God, which I touched on a few moments ago earlier in the sermon. And how does he reveal God's power? He reveals God's power through his own word, which the writer informs us here in verse 3 is upholding the universe. What is upholding the universe? What is keeping things together? What keeps the planets in their orbits? What keeps the universe operating? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. For all that is sustained throughout all of creation is sustained through the spoken word of Christ. Therefore, we can be absolutely confident as our faithful mediator that Jesus has the power to do that which his word commands in the case of mankind. For if it pleases him, in the case of mankind, Jesus can create faith in hearts where there is none. Do you believe that? That he can speak the word and create life where there has been spiritual death? That he can demand by his mere word the results that he has decreed, the decrees that he has declared that will come to pass. In fact, his word always accomplishes what he intends for it whenever it is spoken, wherever, as Charles Spurgeon says, the word of God is unleashed. And sometimes he is pleased to unleash it in a mighty and demonstrative way. 
Then let us notice here, continuing in our text this morning, the writer of this book also mentions Christ's role as our priest and our king. For our text, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 also states that after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And of course, these are roles that Christ exercises as well. Not just the role of prophet, not just the final word, but he's also our priest and our king. And these roles of Christ, or the threefold office of Christ, needs to be preached often just as we preach often that he's our prophet. To preach Christ merely as our prophet alone, or merely as our priest alone, or merely as our king alone, would not be doing him justice. It would not be presenting him rightly. No, Christ must be preached in all three of his mediatorial roles, if he is to be honored in our preaching. Christ must be portrayed as prophet, priest, and king by the preacher, by our churches. And sadly, many churches today only preach a partial Christ. They only preach a partial Christ, for they may preach Christ as our prophet. And we hear of a lot of churches today who talk about the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. A lot of emphasis upon his work as prophet, but very little emphasis, if any, on priest and king. There are some churches that periodically preach Christ as our priest, but they seldom preach him as king. And yet let us notice that all three of Christ's roles are found here in Hebrews chapter 1. In fact, I didn't insert them into the text. They're here. If you look at them carefully, you'll see them. His role as prophet, his role as priest, his role as king. And what is critical about his role as priest, which I want to focus on first of all, is what is emphasized here next with respect to what he removes. What he removes. For verse 3 states here that he made purification for sins. Purification is a priestly work, is it not? Purification removes something. And what work of Christ is being referred to here? Well, no doubt the writer of this book is referring to the work of Christ as our high priest wherein he sacrificed himself for his people, he faithfully and fully satisfied the wrath of God against our sin, and he procured reconciliation with God for us. Not only that, but the idea of purification here points to the removal of our sins completely. Completely and entirely, or we might even insert this word, permanently. For when Christ offered himself in the place of our sins, he not only appeased God's wrath against our sins, the concept of propitiation, but he ensured the removal of those sins from us forever. Forever, as far as the east is from the west, Scripture states at one point. In fact, his work of purification serves as the legal basis for our present and permanent justification before God. For in justification we are accepted by God because our sins have been fully pardoned. They have been removed. They are never to be used against us again. For according to the language and the teaching of our own confession of faith, chapter 11, paragraph 3, Christ by his obedience and death 
did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of the cross undergo in our place the penalty due unto us and he made a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on our behalf. And of course, this theme of Christ's sacrifice as our great high priest, our mediator, will be the focus in later chapters of this letter to the Hebrews. In fact, there will be entire chapters later on in this epistle, as you will see, that are devoted to his high priestly work. For without a proper and balanced understanding of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, we cannot rightly preach the doctrines of redemption and justification. Do you think about that statement? Because what I just said is very weighty. You need a proper and balanced understanding of his work as priest. You can't ignore that and understand what he has accomplished for us in redemption without an appreciation for the sacrifice, for the purification that Christ made. We cannot rightly value our It's not possible to do that without this understanding and balanced grasp of what Christ did. So the writer to the Hebrews clearly wants us to see that Christ's sacrifice for the removal of our sin is at the center of his mediatorial work. It's at the center. The first thing he mentions about his priestly work here in Hebrews 1 is this work of purification. He wants us to see that Christ's Sacrifice was perfect, never to be repeated again. That's the idea here as well. For the writer mentions here in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1 that after making purification for our sins, he, Jesus, our faithful mediator, sat down. And I really want to focus for just a moment on the significance of these words, sat down. I know many of you already know the significance, but it needs to be emphasized at this opportunity. This statement conveys that Christ's work of atonement, of purging of our sins, was fully completed, never needing repeating again. Unlike the Old Testament priests who were always working, they were always standing, making temporary sacrifices that could never take away sins, Jesus offered himself as that one final and perfect sacrifices that would end all sacrifices for God's own people. And after doing so, the writer says, he simply sat down. Now the idea here is he didn't simply sit down in exhaustion. The idea is he sat down in victory. He sat down in victory. For nothing more was required since justice was satisfied. And therefore, as we think about our, our faithful mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we are not to think of him as still hanging upon the cross. Our Catholic friends are greatly confused and greatly deceived to think that Christ should be remembered primarily for hanging on the cross or even standing. We should not even think of Jesus Christ as standing, as having not completed the work, still laboring to accomplish the work. But we are to rejoice in the reality 
that Jesus Christ is now seated. He's now seated. For he has ensured by virtue of his own work as our high priest that our sins have been removed and that his work of redemption has been fully completed and that the Father now accepts us as his beloved children because of what Christ has finished. Oh, may we find great comfort in the work of Jesus Christ as our faithful mediator. May we find great comfort in the fact that Christ is now seated. And so Jesus is our faithful mediator because of what he reveals to us about God and about the radiance of God's glory and about what he removes. But let us consider thirdly and lastly that Jesus is now our great and faithful mediator because of what he reigns over. Because of what he reigns over. And the fact that Jesus is now reigning is emphasized here in verse 3 by these words. Now, pay attention to the words carefully. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Surely, this is royal language. Surely, this is kingly language. It conveys the fact that Jesus is now in a place of honor at the Father's right hand. He is now enjoying a majestic role as our heavenly king. For from his place, seated on the throne appointed for him, Jesus is now reigning as the risen Christ and the ascended king. He is receiving now what God the Father promised him in Psalm 110 and verse 1, where we read these words, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. For even now, not just in the future, but now, let me repeat that, not just in the future, but now, God the Father is in the process of bringing all things into submission to Jesus Christ, of making his enemies his footstool. Even now, the Father is giving Jesus the spiritual inheritance that he promised him back in Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2 and verse 8, where the Father again says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth in your possession. In fact, even in our day, many are coming to Christ, and the boundaries of Christ's kingdom are being extended. Now, maybe you and I don't see it, Maybe in our small world, in our small environment, we don't believe there's a lot happening for the kingdom of Christ. I assure you that there is. His enemies are being brought into subjection. The bounds of his kingdom are, in fact, being extended. And all of this because the Father is faithful to reward Jesus Christ, the Son, for his service, for his faithfulness as our threefold mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And of course, there's a, another reason mentioned here in verse 4 why Jesus deserves recognition as a king, which has to do with his superiority over the angels. But for time's sake this morning, we will address this verse, Lord willing, next week. Because it's my intention, Lord willing, to bring you a two-part message on Christ's superiority over the angels and why that's significant. 
But for now, let those of us who belong to Jesus rejoice in the great and powerful and faithful mediator that we have. For the message is this, we have no ordinary prophet, but we have a prophet who is also a priest and a king. Think about that. We have no ordinary priest, but he is a prophet and a king as well. We have no ordinary king, but he is also a great prophet and priest. In fact, it it may sound redundant to say it in these ways, but all of these things need to be stressed. To preach Christ and all of his glory, to preach Christ in the fullness of his work on behalf of God, on behalf of man, is to emphasize every respect of his mediatorship. All three of his functions within his office as mediator. Therefore, I want to conclude this message this morning with some solemn and serious words. First, let me urge you this morning to see your personal need for Jesus Christ in the ways that are presented to us in this important text of Scripture. For if you are not a believer today, you are lost without a mediator. And you need a mediator who can reconcile you to the glorious and holy God who you have disregarded and disobeyed and offended. And you need not just any mediator, but the only mediator that has been appointed between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You need a mediator who can not only reveal God's purposes and salvation to you and grant you the faith to believe them, but one who can remove your sins permanently and justify you before him by his merits. Then secondly, if you are a believer, I urge you to see your need of Christ's ongoing ministry as your great and faithful mediator. Christ's work as your mediator, believers, not just limited to salvation. Christ's work as your mediator is ongoing today and in the future. Christ is still your great prophet. He will always be. He can remove your ignorance. Are you ignorant? I am. He can remove your ignorance. He can feed your soul with his truth if you will but heed his voice as he speaks through his preached word and through your study of his word. Not only is Christ your prophet to be heard every day. Do you hear that? To be heard every day. But he is your abiding priest as well. Think of his priestly work as you walk in the light as he is in the light. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all your sins. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. And not only this, but Christ ever lives to make intercession for you now. To keep you safely in his grip. To keep you growing in grace. And you should seek your mediator often at the throne of grace. Go to your all-sufficient faithful mediator in times of need. Go to him today. Go to him this morning. Then lastly... Remember, dear believer, that Christ, your mediator, is also your great king. 
is also your great king, and you should rejoice daily that you are under his great reign. For his kingdom, which you now are a citizen of, is a glorious kingdom without end. And the kindness he shows to his subjects, to you and to me, is beyond all that we deserve. May God help us to rest more, to rejoice more under the powerful and pleasant reign of our faithful mediator. Our faithful mediator. God's final word. Our faithful mediator. What a fitting introduction to the person and work of Jesus Christ. What a fitting introduction to the book of Hebrews by the writer to the Hebrews. May we take heed to these words and may we constantly live to promote his great glory rather than selfishly pursuing goods and glory for ourselves or rather than drawing back to our former ways and neglecting and rejecting the grace that God extends to us today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we thank you for this powerful testimony regarding the Lord Jesus Christ as your final and ultimate word and as our faithful mediator who stands for us as our prophet, our priest, and our king. We would ask, Father, that what we've heard today would not quickly escape our minds but that by your grace it would take root in our thoughts today and that throughout this Lord's Day we would meditate upon it, that we would consider our own personal need in light of what's been said, especially if we are outside of Jesus Christ, for we need to know where that true and final and ultimate word of God resides. We hear in the text this morning that it resides in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who come to him, all who trust in him, all who receive his word are not turned away nor cast aside. And as believers, we need to be comforted by the truth that we have a faithful mediator who intercedes for us daily, who prays for us, who sustains us, who enables us to persevere, but also who has removed all of our sins, that we should never be troubled by them again, and so that we might have the joy of being justified and being accepted in your sight. Father, give us grace to see these things today. Apply these truths to our own hearts, that we might be changed and transformed by them, that our minds might be renewed, that the word of Christ may dwell within us richly. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.